He's a good God. He's a good God. You may be seated in the presence of God. I want to first of all acknowledge uh, Pastor Billy. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We honor and we appreciate um, the investment that you've done in the kingdom of God. We just want to appreciate you. Let's give God praise for the man of God. Amen. Then to our guest preachers, uh, Pastor Neville, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, Pastor Vince Blenny says hello. Um, he says you're a very great man of God and uh, we love and appreciate you. Amen. Uh, Pastor Bevan and uh, Zoe, thank you so much for inviting us again. Um, the last time we came here, we spoke about Esther. And um, it was such a great message that I've never preached it again. It's just in the files, you know. Uh, one day, we'll get to preach it again. Amen. And it's good to have my wife as well here. Thank you so much, babes, for being with us. She was in Mozambique. She just came back yesterday. So thank you so much for... Uh, being with us, amen, amen, and then we've also got pastors from our church, I really wanted to preach this tomorrow, <laughs> now I have to write something else for tomorrow, thank you so much for coming, amen, God bless you so much, and then to the whole church, Rebirth, you're doing a fantastic job, um, the praise team, thank you so much, um, guitarist great job where's the guitarist he did a fantastic job where is he Etienne. oh my goodness that was a nice play and um, also um, the worshiper who led um, she's such an honest worshiper man she worships from the heart there's a lot of uh, performers and entertainers there's very few honest worshipers who worship God from the heart and I really felt that and um, offering nugget was amazing amen you should write a book on, on offering nuggets that's one of the best I've ever had amazing amazing Pastor Bevan is just a blessing in my life he's my brother um, one of the amazing things on my journey is in Zimbabwe, the majority of my childhood was spent um, in a colored community. And I grew up, um, so even relating to my other African brothers, I'm more like a colored <laughs> in that my vernac is choppy. <laughs> but I learned a lot. Um, in the color community in Zimbabwe and even my bishop I even went to a color church and learned so much is that level <laughs> hallelujah good to see you and so I'm just so blessed that um, I've just got this thing in my heart for the color community a strong love and a passion and um, wherever I go whether it's in Zimbabwe Zambia I just automatically click with the colored community in every African country. Um, and I love it being here, amen. Um, and we also need to pray for the spring box that God would bless them. You know, I love that the team is very diverse. There's so many uh, different uh, communities represented. 
and they're a good sign that as a country if we if we work together we can do something great in this country and you think we're here south africa is a beautiful country and i'm so thankful for this country i love this country so much and i'm rooting for the success and prosperity of this nation and all the people of this country the one place where the enemy is always attacking us is division it's always divided men against women zulus against everybody um, it's tribes it's races blacks colors indians whites now then then there's also zimbabweans nigerians there's you know pakistanis there's, then it's divided men you liverpool and it's always divided are you ready here uh, we need each other this is if we get our act together this could be one of the richest countries in the world amen amen and we just need to come together and uh, overcome greed corruption and competence and create opportunity for everybody to do honest work and take care of their families amen so turn with me to the book of matthew uh, chapter number 11 and of course this book is written by matthew the text collector he wrote it in ad 30 in israel his audience is he's writing mainly to the jews he wants to convince them that jesus is the messianic king the king of kings who's come to establish the kingdom of god on earth the way this book is structured is chapters 1 to 10 are dealing with the evidence of jesus being the messiah um, chapters 1 to 3 deal with the genealogy he uses the genealogy to prove that jesus is the messiah with strong references to abraham and david and then he proceeds to uh, from chapters 5 up to chapter 10 he uses the teachings of jesus and the miracles of jesus as evidence that jesus is the messiah then from chapter 11 where we are today opposition begins and it's interesting that the first opposition comes from his cousin john and the opposition starts off just as doubt and it begins to metastasize and evolve into greater levels of opposition from different people groups so that's from chapter 11 up to 19 and then from 19 to 25 there is the rejection they reject him as the messiah and then from 26 to 28 comes the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of the messiah so if you turn with me to chapter 11 verse number one it says now it came to pass when jesus finished commanding you got to can you underline when jesus finished it's a critical piece his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities they're in galilee right now in the north in capernaum and when john had heard in prison about the works of christ he sent two of his disciples and said to him 
Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out and see? A man clothed in soft garments indeed. Those who wear soft clothes are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. For this is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Look at your neighbor and say, take it by force. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. Enable us, Father, to deliver this word. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to show up in this room, touch hearts, increase our affection for you. We pray, Father, that let there be a revelation of the, the cross and what you have done. And may that increase our affection for you. May we move from levels of passivity and inactivity into greater fervency, into your presence, into your word, into your gospel. Break all self-centeredness in our hearts. Break all self-reliance in our hearts. Increase our dependency on you and your grace. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, my Bible talk today is, uh, okay, my message is just from doubt to violence. From doubt to violence. Um, my Bible talk today is simply the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. Number one, the passive obedience of Jesus Christ relates to his submission or non-resistance to the pain and suffering of his crucifixion and the events leading up to it. When we speak of the passive obedience of Jesus Christ, when he was being crucified, he could have tapped out, but he submitted to the pain and suffering of the crucifixion and the events leading up to it. Number two, on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered physical pain um, of the Roman crucifixion process. That the Roman crucifixion process was extremely painful. However, there is no indication that the physical pain, the physical pain he suffered, was more than any other human who's been crucified in history. There is no indication that he is the, on the physical pain side, it was more or less than other, any other human being. But, however, 
Jesus' crucifixion was different from any other human being. The next three points will show you that Jesus suffered on that cross more than any other human being in history of crucifixion. And what are these things that made Jesus suffer more? Point number three, bearing all the sins of humanity. He was all the sins of humanity from Genesis 3 till the future were all placed on him. And he had to bear all the guilt and shame of every sin ever committed on earth. Every murder, every, every sin. He had to bear that guilt and that shame on him. Number four, divine abandonment. Jesus on the cross was truly abandoned by God. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from fellowship with the Father. And he had to face the weight of the guilt. He had to face the weight of the guilt and the shame of billions of people alone. Number five. Finally, the full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. On the cross, all the wrath stored up from Genesis 3 for all the sins, for all the atrocities ever committed by all mankind, all that punishment was poured on Jesus. He suffered on that day in a way that no human being when they die can ever face God and say, I suffered more than any other human being. Whatever suffering you have or are going to experience cannot compare to what Jesus went through on the cross. We often look at Job and think he suffered the most. Job didn't suffer on the level of Jesus Christ. Jesus has suffered beyond any suffering that any human being will ever suffer. So that every mouth can be silenced when you are suffering. You can look at the cross and say, he suffered even more than me. Are you hearing me here? Give God praise for that. Amen. My case study today is uh, from innocence to doubt. It's concerning children. Children are naturally born optimistic. And the younger they are, the more trusting they are, particularly of their parents. The older they get, the more skeptical and pessimistic about life they become. And many times it's because of broken, parent, broken promises from their parents, lies from their parents, or hypocritical activity from their parents. Saying hallelujah at church, but swearing like a sailor at home. Are you hearing me here? Shouting all the way in the car to church. And then as soon as you arrive, hallelujah, praise you, Jesus. Brother Bev, how are you? And your kids just saw you and your wife swearing. You break down their innocence. And you destroy their trust. And you bring doubt and skepticism in their lives. So your children end up losing trust 
and optimism towards life. If they doubt you, they will doubt themselves. And always walk in fear and not in faith. Are you hearing me here? It's important that for us, our parents, that we are always trustworthy. And we're always teaching our children that they can trust and be optimistic in life. That we are always going to be there for them. We're always going to be honest with them. And we're always going to have integrity in front of them. When we do what is wrong, we tell them that, hey, what I did was wrong there. Are you hearing me here? And you say, I am a sinner. You tell them, I am a sinner. And I'm struggling with the sin nature. Forgive me for apologizing to mom even though she was wrong. Sometimes peace is more important than violence. Are you hearing me here? You got to make sure there's always integrity in the home. Hallelujah. So for a few minutes today, my sermon is titled From Doubt to Violence. And I've structured uh, the pericope of this text this way. Section 1 is verses 1 to 3. John sends a message to Jesus while he's in prison. Section 2 is verses 4 to 6. Jesus replies his WhatsApp message. Section 3 is verses 7 to 10. Jesus speaks a good word or a tribute about John the Baptist. And then section 4, verses 11 to 15, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God and violence. I'm going to spend the majority of my time in section 1 of the text, then I'm going to incorporate section 2 and 3, and then close with section 4. So let's go to section 1, where John sends a message to Jesus. Just turn there and look at verses 1 to 3. So as we embark on this uh, expository journey in Matthew 11, verse 1 welcomes us into the text by freely giving us a golden key that helps us unlock the entire book of Matthew. This golden key gives you keys to five doors in the book. Right in the reception area of this text, verse 1 gives you this phrase, when Jesus had finished. Say, when Jesus had finished. Can you see it in your Bible? Uh, this statement, when Jesus had finished, is actually what is known as a refrain, a refrain, which is like a chorus, a chorus or a melody that you see five times in Matthew, in between what scholars call the five discourses of the book of Matthew. The five discourses of the book of Matthew are five distinct teachings, teaching sessions of Jesus that are written in the book of Matthew. Discourse 1 is the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 to 7. After his baptism and temptation, Jesus comes out of the wilderness as the true and better Moses, who passed the test in the wilderness. Moses failed the test and struck the rock Jesus passed the test he didn't turn the stones to bread so he comes out of the wilderness as the true and better Moses but also as the rock which was going to be struck on the cross he is going to be the ultimate rock who willingly obeys passively as he is struck on the cross 
as part of God's redemptive plan. And then Moses ascends into the mountain. Jesus ascends into the mountain as a type of Moses. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus releasing a new law. And he declares and he invites people into the kingdom of God to embrace a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees. And its refrain is found in seven, uh, Matthew 7, 28, where it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teachings. Amen. Discourse 2 is the missionary discourse, which is in chapter 10. Here Jesus sends his 12 disciples and gives them instructions on how to minister in that chapter. And Jesus proves to be a true and better Moses in that when Moses sent his 12, they came back with a bad report. But when Jesus sends his 12, they came back rejoicing with a good report. Moses' 12 spies returned with bad news and Jesus' 12 spies came back with good news. And the refrain is in verse 1 of chapter 11. So where we are right now is the refrain of the missionary discourse. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 that he departed. Discourse 3 is the parables of the kingdom, which is uh, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus uses parables to convey spiritual truth about the kingdom of heaven. And in this discourse, he is the true and better Solomon. He is a better Solomon in that Solomon, after teaching proverbs of wisdom, at the end of his life, he failed. He bowed his knee to the false gods of his wives. But when Jesus was offered the kingdoms of this world, in, and he was offered by Satan, bow down to me for these kingdoms. Jesus, who is the true and better Solomon, did not bow the knee. He said, get thee behind me. I would rather take the cross than bow to the enemy. And its refrain is in uh, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. Discourse 4 is the discourse on the church, chapter 18, where Jesus prophetically speaks of a remnant called the church. And Jesus here is greater than all of the prophets who prophesied of a remnant that is coming because he was going to lay down the foundation of that remnant by laying down his life on the cross. And the refrain is in 19 verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Discourse 5 is the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 to 25. And this was given on the Mount Olives. And its focus was on the end times, the destruction of the temple and the final judgment. And Jesus in this discourse reveals himself as supreme over all creation even over sin death the devil and time itself through him all things shall find their fulfillment he stands as a supreme ruler over every facet of creation and eternity 
and the refrain is in 26 verse 1 now it came to pass when Jesus had finished so our text then is at the end of discourse 2 the missionary discourse after Jesus gave his 12 disciples power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and disease and we believe in a God who is still able to cast out devils to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases even right now by the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit then in verse 2 we get the inciting incident of the passage verse 2 presents us with something very unsettling when it says and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ he sent two of his disciples and said to him are you the coming one or are we to look for another what is going on here why is John saying to Jesus are you the coming one or should we look for another these sound like fighting words amen in marriage you know when in certain words certain answers you know when something is brewing and his question leaves a bad taste in my mouth why is John saying this uh, let us try and find out the John in this text we have to clarify is John the Baptist the cousin of Jesus he's not John the Baptist in that he was a Baptist in the Baptist denomination we call him John the Baptist because he was baptized. Amen. And um, he was the cousin of Jesus. And in the book of Matthew, John is mentioned seven times. The first time is in Matthew 3, verses 1 to 17. And here Matthew tells us that John was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And his message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew goes on to tell us that John was the fulfillment of prophecy. In particular, Isaiah 40 verse 3, which says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John is the forerunner. He's the one who prepares the way for Jesus. He's then described as one who had an interesting dress code. He wore camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. His ministry attracted crowds to Judea. They came from Jerusalem to the river Jordan. All kinds of people were coming. There was a revival by the river Jordan. And if we see in Matthew 3 verse 11, we see a major part of his message was about the coming Messiah. And he said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we can clearly see that John prophesied that the Messiah is coming after him. So why is he saying now, are you the coming one or do we look for another? I mean, in this same chapter, John baptizes Jesus 
Not only did he baptize Jesus, but when he baptized him, we're told that the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit came like a dove and God spoke, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John was right there when it happened. So why is he saying, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Even John the disciple, uh, he brings some evidence against John the Baptist in John 1 verse 32. Uh, that he tells us what John said at the moment of baptism. He says, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that he is God's chosen one. What's going on in John? Why is John doubting? He literally said, he said, I saw and I testified that he is God's chosen one. Why is John doubting? Why? Why? When we can see that even before Jesus was baptized, God spoke to his prophet John and told him that you are going to baptize the chosen one. And when the heavens open and the Holy Spirit comes down, it's a sign of confirmation. God told him before Jesus came that I'm going to show you a sign of who is the one. And even after that baptism, God came and spoke to John again, confirming that Jesus is God's chosen one. So why in the world is John saying, are you the coming one or should we look for another? And this for me is a sign of the devastating impact of original sin. That thanks to Adam's fall, all of us in here, even after seeing great signs, even after powerful services, even after years of seeing the goodness of God, seeing Him move, seeing Him move mountains, seeing Him make waves, seeing Him heal, seeing Him cast out devils, seeing the hand of God, we can still doubt God, even after God reveals His faithfulness. Our hearts are so fallen that we have spiritual amnesia whenever we go through difficulty. We are so wicked that even after God shows us great signs in the past, in a present trial we can raise up offense. God has done so many things for you in your life. And one small problem, where is God? God doesn't love me. Why is God allowing this to happen in my life? John's doubt scares me because it's a humbling reminder to us of the depth of our fallenness. John was a very strong man of God. He had submitted to one of the hardest vows in scripture called the Nazarite vow, which required one to live a life extremely dedicated to God. The conditions of the Nazarite vow are found in number six, and you must commit to abstain from wine. 
you must you must not come in contact with dead bodies not cut off your hair and give special offerings to the lord in the old testament we only have two examples of people who made that vow samson and samuel i hear him here and john is the only one in the new testament who we see who makes this vow this was a tough vow to make and it shows a high level of commitment to God. But even with John's level of commitment, he's still questioning Jesus. Yeah. How can John say, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Maybe the reason can be found in verse 2 where it says he is in prison. And this ties then with the second mention of John in Matthew, which is in John chapter 4, verse 12. Let's turn there. If you got your Bible, let's turn there to John chapter 4, uh, verse number 12. And it says, Now, when Jesus had heard that John was put in prison, right? This is very interesting. Because this statement comes straight after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. After defeating Satan, the first thing that Jesus hears, after this victory, the first thing that he hears is your cousin John has been arrested. Which makes Jesus then leave Judea in the south and go to Galilee in the north where he begins to stay and minister in Capernaum. So Matthew at this point in chapter 4 doesn't give us the details why John is arrested. Even in the third mention of John in Matthew chapter 9 verses 14 to 17, we just see the disciples of John questioning Jesus concerning his disciples not fasting. And in the text we are dealing with here in Matthew 11, it's the fourth mention of John where we are simply told John is in prison. We don't know why. And it's only in chapter 14 where Matthew gives us a backstory of why John is in jail. And he starts off, if you can turn there with me, for those who brought physical Bibles, may the Lord increase you. Amen. Hallelujah. May God bless you with Range Rover Defenders. All black. If you turn to 14. You see that Matthew is a storyteller. He just starts off very dramatically. He says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard that the report about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Can you see that? We, we last see John in chapter 11. And then now in chapter 14, Matthew greets us with this weird statement that John, that Jesus is John resurrected from the dead. At this point, uh, you're like, what does Herod mean that Jesus is John raised from the dead? Because the last time we see John in chapter 11, he was in prison and alive. But then in 14 verses 3 to 5, Matthew tells us why John was arrested. John was arrested because he openly criticized and condemned Herod Antipas for his unlawful and immoral marriage to Herodias, his sister-in-law, who was still married to Herod's brother, Philip. Say so this was dramatic. 
So John was calling him out on his sin and saying, repent. That is unlawful. I don't care who you are. All of us have to submit to the word of God. No one is greater than the word of God. No individual is greater than the word of God. No church movement is greater than the word of God. We must all submit to the word of God. If what we are doing is violating the word of God, we are out of order. We need to submit to the word of God. Are you hearing me here? So Herod and Tippus arrested John and tragically in verse 10 we see that he killed John on Herod's birthday. So the next two mentions of John then are Matthew 16, 14 where the idea of Jesus being John resurrected is again shown as something that was now popular in Israel. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say you are John resurrected. I hear him here. They believed in ancestors too. The amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then the next time we see John is in 17 after the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus comes down the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the disciples ask about the prophecy in Malachi 3 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Then Jesus let them know that the prophecy has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. And those are the seven mentions of John in Matthew. So John in the text is in prison and before he dies. And the question is still saying, why are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Why is John saying this? Could it be the prison conditions that he was in? Kina says that John was imprisoned in Herod's fortress called the Fortress of Machaerus. It was in Judea in the south, next uh, to the east of the Dead Sea. And it was a fortified military fortress and it also had a palace and prison facilities. It was on a steep and rocky hill mountain and it was very hard to access it and very hard to leave it. At this point, we need to celebrate the faithfulness of the disciples of John because they went up to that fortress, got the message from John, traveled 80 kilometers to Galilee to carry John's message to Jesus. Jesus replies, and the disciples go back with the good news from Jesus. They fulfill the prophecy concerning preachers of the gospel in Isaiah 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says, Zion, your God reigns. These men suffered to get to Jesus. And these men suffered to return the message. They are a picture of the labor involved in ministry and the preaching of the gospel. It's not child's play. Some scriptures are like the fortress of Machaerus, very difficult to access. And some questions are very hard 
that we have to present to the Lord and say, Lord, help us answer. Why is South Africa struggling right now? Help us to answer the people. Why are we so divided? Why were we colonized? Why was there apartheid? Why is Israel and Palestine fighting? We have to be able to go to the Lord with these hard questions and return, are hearing me here, with good news. Are hearing me here. And the climate in the prison was very oppressive. Uh, it was in a desert area and it got extremely hot and dry in the summer. The living conditions of prisoners were very bad. Normally, they would send political prisoners to that prison. And Osborne says that John was in that prison for a year before he died. So I'd like to argue today that the doubt expressed by John was induced by a season of suffering. But his doubt was not because of the suffering. The suffering triggered the doubt, but it wasn't the cause. His doubt is because of his misunderstanding of the gospel. The suffering merely brought to the surface that John didn't understand the gospel. It's important to note that at this time, the gospel was still a mystery sovereignly ordained by God to be initially hidden and only fully exposed after the cross. So deep within our hearts lies our true beliefs of the gospel and they often remain hidden until hard circumstances reveal what we believe. Nothing in the earth brings out what you truly believe about God in your heart like suffering and no matter who you are you are going to suffer pain on earth you are not going to go through life without experiencing pain without experiencing struggle and in some form in some area of your life every one of us are going to suffer pain on this earth and what's going to sustain us is our understanding of the gospel Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, like many of his Jewish contemporaries who rejected Jesus, believed that Jesus would come to deliver Israel by defeating his enemies and restoring the kingdom of Israel. But what John didn't know is that Jesus didn't come to save by killing his enemies. He came to save by being killed by his enemies. While confined in that oppressive jail, doubt began to creep into John's heart because he had a sovereignly limited understanding of the gospel. He expected to start hearing reports of Jesus leading a military uprising against Rome, believing that Jesus would be used as an instrument of heaven on earth to unleash the wrath of God against all of his enemies. What John didn't know is that Jesus in his first coming had a different mission. Rather than unleashing God's wrath and judgment in the earth upon his enemies, Jesus had come to receive the full brunt of God's wrath on the cross. 
So as John is suffering, he begins to doubt and question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And I strongly believe that John's doubt wasn't based on his suffering alone because in section 3 of the text, verses 7 to 10, we see that John lived a very difficult life. In fact, he wasn't... Uh, even though he had clouds coming, he lived a very difficult life. John's ministry was very hard. And Jesus actually praises him for his grit when he says, What did you go in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. John was not soft. Neither was he a stranger to difficult conditions. And Jesus confirms it in verse 8. But what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments indeed. Those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. John was not a man of luxury. He was a man who grew up in desert conditions. So he was not a stranger to harsh conditions in the fortress of Macarius. We are in a generation of soft life church where preachers can't endure hardship. All they want is easy street. Preachers want to be extravagant and can't handle the hardship of ministry. Sometimes you go through hard seasons. Don't consider it a strange thing. Rejoice and be grateful that God has still called you to preach the gospel. That even though I might not have king's clothes, while I'm wearing camel's hair and a leather belt and eating locusts and honey, the power of the gospel is working in my life. And it doesn't matter if I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm still going to preach this gospel with all of my life. I hear it here. Hallelujah. Why is John doubting Jesus? It's because he doesn't fully understand the gospel. Are you the coming one or should we look for another? And doubt is very subtle but it's dangerous because doubt is deception in diapers. Doubt grows and becomes deception. It's deception in seed form. And we see this in Genesis 3, the devil's devices. He started off with the doubt. Did God really say? Before he shifted it to full-blown deception. When he says, you will not die. For God knows that in that day you will eat it. Your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemy always likes to start with doubt. Is Jesus really the coming one? Surely he's not the coming one. How can he be the one when you're in jail? How can he be the one when you're praying and nothing is changing in your life? How can Jesus be the one when you are broke? How can Jesus be the one when he allowed your child to die? How can Jesus be the one when you're struggling with sin? How can Jesus be the one when he's allowing all this crime, rape, corruption in South Africa? How can Jesus be the one when there's all this suffering around the world? Surely he's not the one. We need to look for another. 
Because doubt starts with a question, then it closes with a suggestion for rebellion. Yes, to find another savior. When you go through something painful with a faulty modern day Christless gospel, doubt will begin with the lie that God doesn't really care. Ah, he doesn't care about you. And then doubt will escalate to deception and say God lied to you. He's not a good God. He's an evil, spiteful God who enjoys human suffering. He likes to see Africans suffer. He likes to see the crime and destruction. He likes to see men in pain. You might, you, you're going to look for another. Save yourself. Seek another savior. Turn to witchcraft. Turn to the ancestors. Turn to Islam. Turn to your job for salvation. Turn to the politicians for help. Turn to women for relief. Turn to alcohol. Turn to marijuana. Turn to other things to heal the pain that you're going through because God doesn't care about Africans. God doesn't care about colors. God doesn't care about swanas. God doesn't care about South Africa. Look for your own savior. Doubt pushes you out from the presence of God and you start looking for ways to save yourself. And I have to make this point here, that though doubt is our natural reaction to suffering as fallen man, we must never underestimate the destructive places it can take us. And we must know that any time we doubt our God, we have no basis of doubting God at all. There is no justification of doubting God. God is the only person in the universe who is not worthy of any doubt simply because he is infinitely faithful. He is holy. He is omniscient. He is Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant-keeping God. Our doubt is never justified. You have no right to doubt God. He is faithful. He's more faithful than the political party. He's more faithful than Cyril Ramaphosa. He's more faithful than the DA. He's more faithful than the Patriotic Alliance. He's more faithful than Robert Trump. He's more faithful than Ted Hart. He's more faithful than Ted Guardiola. He's more faithful than Rossi. He's more faithful than the Springboks. He's the So when doubt uh, creeps in our 
have no right to, to doubt God. Our doubt is a manifestation of our fallen nature because as fallen men, we struggle to fully trust God wholeheartedly. In our hearts, we feel that somehow there is something wrong with God. He's not dependable. He's not a good God. So when doubt creeps into our hearts, it should always serve as a humbling reminder of our need to depend on God for divine grace to trust God. You cannot trust God with human effort. You cannot trust God in your own strength. Because as men, we have to recognize that even the act of trusting God cannot be achieved through our own efforts. We are so fallen that trusting God, even to trust God, we need God to help us trust Him. Or oh, the disciples said, Lord, help our faith. Increase our faith. We can't be, we, we, oh my God, we are so fallen we can't even trust Him by ourselves. We require the grace of God to enable us to trust God. Attempting to trust God through human effort, positive thinking, mind power, willpower will always fall short. You have to come to God and say, God, you know me. When the pressure is high, I start to doubt you. I need you to give me the grace to trust you. You know me when the devil orders are ringing. I start to get anxious and say, oh, where are you? I need your grace to help me trust you. You have to depend on God to give you the grace to depend on God. Because the glory of God is revealed in our dependency on God. And His grace enables us to trust Him. So the good news here is when John was in doubt, he didn't keep his doubt suppressed in his heart. He quickly turned that doubt and threw it to Jesus. And so we have to catch the right tone of his question. When he says, are you the coming one or do we look for another? I don't believe that John was being aggressive. He wasn't trying to rebuke Jesus. This was in the tone of a lament. It was a desperate cry for help. Are you the one or do we look for another? It wasn't a hyper-emotional cry like someone at an African funeral. He wasn't saying, are you coming? Or how do we also we look for another? No, it was similar to the tone of Jesus on the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Lord, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours be done. John was just asking as a broken man, I need your help, Jesus. Are you the coming one? Or should we look for another? I'm in a hard place, Jesus. I just need that final assurance from you. I need that grace. Because I'm doubting, I'm under attack in this prison. Are you the one or do we look for another? John didn't carry his doubt to another. 
didn't carry it to another savior. He brought his doubts to Jesus. And whenever we doubt, we must bring our doubts to Jesus and pray for the grace to be enabled to trust him. When we are doubting ourselves in ministry, carry that doubt and say, Lord, help me to do this thing. When you are doubting yourself in marriage, Lord, am I, am I able to be a good husband? Am I able to be a good wife? Am I, you carry that doubt to Jesus. Yeah, when, when you're doubting God on the job, can I really do this? Am I, am I able to, to, to do this work in corporate essay? Carry that doubt to Jesus. That's why later in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Stop trying to try harder in the kingdom of God. The gospel is not try harder advice. It's depend on God more. Whatever area of deficiency, even with prayer, we don't say pray harder. Depend on God to enable you to pray. Depend more. Don't try harder. Depend more. Enter into the rest of depending on God. You don't have the capacity to do this yourself. You need the grace of God. And then in section 2, in verses 4 to 6, Jesus, who cares deeply about John, answers John with a very strategic statement when he says, Go and tell John these things you hear and see. Tell him the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Amen. What's going on here? What does Jesus mean by this? Jesus is very smart. Firstly, it seems like to help John with his doubt, he simply is summarizing what he has done from chapter 5 up to chapter 9. All the miracles and the teachings he has done. At first appearance, we don't understand that Jesus is not only summarizing all he has done so far, but he's grounding his actions in messianic prophecy. Everything in this statement comes from Isaiah. Most of it comes from Isaiah 35. You need to read Isaiah 35 after this. He's showing John that I am the Messiah. Everything I'm doing is fulfilling what was spoken concerning the coming one. And Matthew is showing his Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied by Isaiah. The blind see is Isaiah 35 verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The lame walk is Isaiah 35 verse 6. The lame shall leap like a deer. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, Isaiah 35 verse 5. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The dead are raised, Isaiah 26 19. Your dead shall live. And to the poor the gospel is preached. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
For ye have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I hear me here. He grounds his life in the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 35. Why? Because John's messianic doubt is coming from Isaiah 35. You need to turn there and see why. Because before he gets to verse 5 in Isaiah, if you can turn there for those with real Bibles. There's a, there's a grace of real Bibles, hallelujah. There's a real Bible's revival coming. And for those who are looking at their phones, you can get out of Facebook and just turn to Amen. Right. Are you there now? Now verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. But before we get there, Read verse 4. It says, Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense, he will come to save you. And here is John's misunderstanding of the gospel. Here's where it comes to play. His gospel had an expectation of violence. That the violence of God is going to save you. He's expecting the Messiah to unleash violence against his enemies. He doesn't yet know that Jesus in his first coming is not coming to release violence. He has come to suffer under violence. The violence of sin and death. And he's going to save not by violence. He's going to save by grace. He's not establishing his kingdom through violence. He's establishing his kingdom through grace. This is a radical way to establish a kingdom because throughout history, all earthly kingdoms have been established by kings killing their enemies and forcing them to submit. You see it with the Roman Empire when Caesar crossed the Rubicon and came and fought Pompeii, drove him to Egypt and took over Rome. And then he got killed by violence after four years of ruling. And then his successor, Octavian Augustus, unleashed violence against his enemies, went to Egypt and killed Anthony and Cleopatra. Violence. Kings established their kingdoms through killing their enemies. But the gospel shows us that the kingdom of God shall not be established by a king who's killing his enemies. Instead, this king shall be killed by his enemies. And when he rises from the dead, instead of vengeance, he offers grace. So that they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. You don't need to seek another. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the gospel, Jesus tells us that my kingdom is radically different from any earthly kingdom. It's not built on self-centeredness of fallen man. It's built on self-sacrifice. It's not built on forcing people into my kingdom. It's built on loving and serving people. It's not built on self-righteousness and feeling that your human goodness can save you. It's built on recognizing your sin and that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. It's not a kingdom built on self 
reliance and human effort. My kingdom is built on total dependence on God's grace to enable you to live a holy life that is characterized by good works, characterized by productivity, characterized by charity, characterized by generosity, characterized by kindness. My goal is not to sit on an earthly throne and force people to obey me. I am here to die on a tree, naked, covered in blood, from my head to my toes, and receive the violence of God that you are all going to receive. All the violence of God for every sin ever committed shall be poured on me. And after I receive it, I'm not going to give more violence to you. I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you justification. I'm going to give you sanctification. And when you die, I'm going to give you glorification. What an amazing Savior. What an amazing Savior. And when you know by the power of the gospel being preached, you are regenerated by the Spirit. You will look at the cross and ask yourself, how dare I doubt the one who came to die for me? How dare I consider seeking another savior? How dare I consider seeking someone else when he has come to die for me? That's why he closes his reply to John with this beatitude. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. The kingdom of God is radically different from this world. It goes against the self-centeredness in the hearts of fallen men. It offends our self-centeredness. That's why many preachers call it the upside-down kingdom. Because our self-centeredness says when someone compels you, go one mile. You don't even want to do the one mile. He says, go two miles. When they slap you, turn the other cheek. Because your self-centeredness always wants to revenge. You never want to forgive. When he says, the one who wants to be great among you must serve. The reason why in our generation a lot of divorces are happening, husband and wife don't want to serve each other. Husband wants to be master, wife wants to be master. But we are called to serve one another. Are you hearing me here? John's doubt is understandable and excusable because he lived in the time before the cross, before the full revelation of God's love and faithfulness through the cross of Jesus Christ. It had not yet unfolded, but for us in the New Testament church, we are in a time where Jesus has accomplished redemption on the cross. And this redemption is so powerful and so brilliant that it should shatter any doubt about God's love and faithfulness in our lives. The cross of Jesus stands as the highest mountain peak in scripture. And this is the place we must bring our doubts when we look at Jesus, the crucified one, who was truly doubted and truly crucified because of those who doubted and did not believe in him. They didn't believe he was the coming one. And because they didn't believe he was the coming one, they chose to look at another. They chose Barnabas instead of the coming one. Because Barnabas had come to bring the king 
violence. He was a violent terrorist who was going to unleash violence against Rome and they chose violence and rejected, rejected grace. Understanding the gospel and what it has accomplished on the cross will transform your doubts into a radical love and trust and then you will become an intense worshiper. The cross will change you from doubt to violence. And then Jesus closes by speaking about the kingdom and violence in verses 11 to 12. And Jesus says a very popular statement, the kingdom suffers violence. Because after he replies John in verses 4 to 6 and in 7 to 10, when he pays tribute to the greatness and significance of God's redemptive plan in John, when he quotes in verse 10, Malachi 3, 1, for this is he whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's letting them know that John is not only a prophet, but he's a fulfillment of prophecy. And Osman says that Jesus was showing them that John is the turning point. He's, he's the hinge of redemptive history. He's the one who prepared the way for the final fulfillment of God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. So in a sense, when John was doubting Jesus, he was doubting himself. And when he was doubting himself, Jesus just lavished him with love and honor and reminded him of his significance in God's redemptive plan. Very good. And that's what happens when we are in doubt as ministers. We need to turn to Jesus. And when we turn to him, he's not going to bash us for our doubt, but he's going to empower us with grace and remind us of our significant role in his redemptive plan. Every preacher of the gospel has a significant role in God's redemptive plan. Whether your church has thousands, whether your church has hundreds, whether your church has ten, whether your church has five, every preacher is part of God's redemptive plan. And it's through his grace that he is using you to touch lives and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ and increase the love and affection of his people for their Savior. So in verse 11, he adds even more honor to John when he says, this is the one, this is the one who among women is the greatest. There's no one who's been greater than John. So in essence, he's saying that everyone born in history, John is the greatest. He's greater than Adam, he's greater than Noah, he's greater than Abraham, John was greater than Isaac, John was greater than Jacob, John was greater than Joseph, John was greater than Moses, he was greater than Deborah, he was greater than Othniel, he was greater than Gideon, he was greater than Samson, he was greater than Jephthah, he was greater than Ruth, John was greater than Boaz, he was greater than Samuel, he was greater than David, he was greater than Solomon, John was greater than Elisha, Elijah, he was greater than Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, John was greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Obadiah, Micah, Othniel, Obadiah, he was greater than all of them. John was greater than every Old Testament figure. Why? 
it's because he has his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one who prophesied the Messiah and saw the Messiah. The turning point of history in Jesus. And in Matthew 11, 11, we see that John's greatness isn't attributed to his personal achievements. It's attributed to the grace of God. He was chosen by divine providence to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom. And he had the privilege of seeing the one called to establish it. He had the privilege of baptizing the one called to establish it. Then Jesus says something which scares us now. But he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. This is a staggering statement. How is it that, how is it even possible that someone who is least in the kingdom today surpasses the greatness of John? It's because John proclaimed the dawn of the new covenant that was ushered in by Jesus, but he lived and died under the old covenant. He proclaimed it. He was like Moses. He said, there's the promised land. But he died in the wilderness. We are the children of the new covenant that Jesus initiated on the cross. And it's so much greater than the old uh, that even the least of us in this church today is greater than any of your heroes in the Old Testament here greater. Because the spiritual blessings we have through Jesus are so much superior in quality that even the least among us who belongs to this new covenant in Christ surpasses the greatness of all Old Testament figures. The abundant grace made available through Jesus Christ has elevated every member of the church to a level of greatness that transcends any human achievement or status of anyone in the Old Testament. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is as different as a candlelight and the sun. The candle's warmth and the candle's light cannot compare. Oh my Jesus. That's how good we have it in Christ. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and has given to us is infinitely superior to the Old Testament. That's why we must be like the writer of Hebrews and understand that this is a covenant built on better promises. Oh, and it's through understanding the gospel more and more and we begin to understand what do we have in Christ? What has he given us? What, what, what are these spiritual blessings that we have that all our doubts and our fears and anxieties will begin to disappear? And then Jesus closes with this statement from the days of John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. This verse has caused some problems for scholars and the debate is whether it means that the kingdom advances through violence or if the kingdom suffers under violence. And when we look at this, the flow of the text from the start and what Jesus is teaching, John's expectation was that the kingdom advances through violence. He was partially correct. The kingdom was going to advance through violence, but the king would be the one inflicted and afflicted by the violence. 
The kingdom is going to advance through violence because the violence we were meant to justly receive from God for our sins was poured out on Jesus. Think of all the worst crimes and violence ever experienced on earth. All that pain was suffered by Jesus on the cross. No human is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't want to be a Christian because there was so much suffering, because I suffered so much. That's why I refused to bow my knee. Because the level of suffering that Jesus endured on the cross is the greatest level of suffering any human can possibly imagine. We always think of the suffering of Jesus as physical affliction only. Though that was extremely painful, there was a spiritual dimension to his suffering on the cross. The spiritual dimension of the suffering was infinitely more painful than what was happening physically. His suffering involved him becoming sin and having the wrath of God poured on him on the cross. We will never understand the level of suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross. We always think it was all the physical suffering. We only think it was the beating at the hands of the Romans. We only think it was the crown of thorns alone. We only think it was the piercing of the nails in his head. Jesus was a, didn't only go through physical suffering, he experienced spiritual violence. He went through spiritual violence on the cross. Please note that on the cross, Jesus was not afflicted by Satan on the cross. Neither was he afflicted in hell. When he said it is finished on the cross, the affliction ended right there. Please note that the affliction Jesus experienced on the cross was the violence of God himself. On the cross, God in his justice and holiness punished Jesus with the most intense, righteous violence known to man. He visited the sin of mankind on Jesus on the cross and he suffered in ways you could never imagine. Jesus concludes then by saying that the violence taken by force this makes it clear that when you see the King of Kings suffering violence on the cross, your response cannot be to be a passive, low-intensity Christian. When you understand what Jesus suffered, you can't be low-intense in your worship. Your pursuit of God has to be violent too. When you see what Jesus suffered, you can't be a lukewarm Christian, when it comes to God, you must increase your affection for God. Where are you when it comes to worship? How can you see the violence that Jesus suffered on the cross and have no intensity when it's time to worship? Where are you when it comes to church attendance? How can you see the violence that Jesus suffered on the cross and be comfortable with skin?
are in the New Testament. It was fine for John to doubt. But us in the New Testament, after what he has done, how can we doubt? How can you doubt that God loves you? How dare you feel abandoned by God? Jesus was the only one who was truly abandoned. In your life, there has not been a day where he's abandoned you. He will never abandon you. Because on the cross, Jesus said, if you abandon me, promise me you'll never abandon these. He will never abandon you. You might feel like you're abandoned, but you'll never in your life be truly abandoned. Whether you're prayerful or prayerless, he will never abandon you. Amen. He has made a promise Amen. to his son. So when Jesus resurrected, he rose up with his body. And his body was a glorified body. How do you know this? Thomas came and said, let me touch the wounds. The wounds were still there, but he couldn't feel anything. He was eating fish. He said, even put your, put your hand here, put it. And he kept eating his fish. And he ascended in heaven with that same body. In heaven, Jesus is not a ghost. He has the same body head on the cross. Every scar on his head, his hands, his side, is still in heaven right now. So when he's interceding for you, he stands before the Father, bearing every mark of the violence he suffered. Father, 
What was going on in the Trinity, in the Godhead, when you were abandoned and had to carry our sin and guilt? What are the horrors you saw? What all the evil you saw? The violence you saw, all the violence you've done on ourselves. All the children being killed and aborted, all the violence, the terror, the wars, the genocides, the colonizations, every terrible thing. We thank you, Jesus, for the cross and the grace that comes through you. Give us the grace to trust you. Give us the grace to live the lives of true Christians with the kingdom of God in our hearts. Help us, Lord God, to understand that blessed are the poor in spirit, Father. Help us to understand how much we need you, how bankrupt we are without you. Help us to depend on you for our spiritual lives, to depend on you for our prayer lives, to depend on you for our preaching, to depend on you for our worship, to depend on you for leadership, Help us to depend on you in our work, Father, in the jobs that we work, in the businesses that we run. Help us to depend on you, Father, for provision. Help us to be good stewards of the opportunities in South Africa that you've given us. Help us to be good stewards of our, of our marriages, of our children, of our homes. Help us to, to glorify you. We want to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And Lord, help us to get supreme satisfaction from you right now. May our number one prayer request be more and more of you. Help us, Father, to not put anything ahead of you, to make you the main thing. May we find our fulfillment in you, not in what we have, not in what we're trying to achieve, not in our jobs, not in our accolades. May our fulfillment come from you right now. We pray against feelings of lack of fulfillment and lack of achievement because of the things we're lacking or the things we're trying to achieve. We are rich in you right now. We are rich in you right now. You said that the gospel is preached to the poor. We thank you, Father, today that the kingdom of God is a place, it's a leveler where every race, every tribe, every social status is accepted and loved as they are. Teach us to be fulfilled in you, to see you as beautiful, not just as useful. We don't want to just use you for stuff. We want to love you and enjoy you. And we can do it in our own strength. You know we are sneaky. You know we are self-centered. You know we are greedy. You know we are full of pride. You know we are competitive. You know we, we place our value in what people think of us. Help us to understand what you did for us. And may that satisfy us. Help us to find our justification in you. Our reason to exist is in you and you alone. Help us, Father, for the days we, we feel dissatisfied with our lives, feeling we could achieve more, or we could have more, or 
We could have more things, but yet we've got you. We want divine satisfaction and fulfillment that comes from you right now. We come to you, Father, heavy laden, and we bring every burden to you. We refuse to be anxious. We refuse to be discouraged. We refuse to be depressed. We choose to be joyful. We choose to have the peace of God. We, we choose to have faith in our future. That even though things are unstable in the world, in South Africa, you are still in control. You are on the throne. There is nothing happening which you didn't see. There's nothing happening today which you didn't see and allow to happen. There's nothing that has happened in my life which you didn't allow to happen. There's no death in my life which you didn't allow to happen. There's no bad event that you didn't allow to happen. I trust you wholly and completely with my life. Whatever comes my way, I believe in your goodness. I believe that all things work together for good. Even the bad things, even the painful things, even the hard things, you are still working. Have your way in our lives. And now we pray for Rebirth Church. We pray, Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit. May the gospel shine through. We pray, Father, for spiritual growth, spiritual health, spiritual strength. We pray, Father, for a great, great presence to remain in this church. We thank you, Father, for growth, revival. We thank you, Father, for a community, a family. We pray, Father, for the grace to participate in community programs. We pray, Heavenly Father, that keep the work that you've begun among them. You are faithful to complete it. We pray, Father, for Pastor Ben and Zoe, Father, keep blessing them. Give them many years. Give bless the work of their hands. Whatever they set their minds to do, Father, help them to achieve. May rebirth be a house where many people get born again. Where people experience the regeneration. The miracle of regeneration. The new birth. Oh, may it come in this house. May you advance the kingdom through this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.